When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. It's the 2nd of September 1914, and a group of men are gathered in Wellington House in London. The building is the recently created office of the War Propaganda Bureau. The men are there to discuss how best they can serve their country. This is just weeks after the outbreak of the First World War. But these men aren't in the military. They're not soldiers being briefed for a mission or generals reviewing tactics, nor are they politicians. They are in fact all authors. This historic meeting was a gathering of British literary greats. Thomas Hardy was there, the author of The Mayor of Casterbridge and Jude the Obscure and one of the most renowned writers of the age. So too was H.G. Wells, celebrated today as the author of early science fiction masterpieces like The War of the Worlds, The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Arthur Conan Doyle was there, the creator of the extraordinarily popular Sherlock Holmes stories. So were J.M. Barrie, the author of Peter Pan, G.K. Chesterton, Arnold Bennett and many others. If you like early 20th century fiction, and I really like early 20th century fiction, this meeting is pretty exciting. There are so many great authors together in one room. I mean, if it's still possible to imagine a group of authors being summoned to a secret room to save their country, who would you invite? Who, who would be the great authors of today? In this case, the authors had all been gathered by Charles F.G. Masterman, who headed the War Propaganda Bureau, and they were there to discuss how their writing could serve the war effort. And it's, it's fascinating to look at this list of authors. You know, as you might expect, a lot of the authors who, at the time, seemed destined to centuries of fame have inevitably faded into obscurity. There are also many notable omissions of authors whose literary or cultural importance was only gained in later decades, or who simply their political views weren't really compatible with the aims of the War Bureau. The writers at the meeting would go on to sign a widely published author's declaration, denouncing Germany's invasion of Belgium. In total, over 50 authors and intellectuals signed the declaration. This included Rudyard Kipling, a writer who has largely fallen out of fashion today and is known to many as simply the author of The Jungle Book. In this period, though, he was immensely popular. A short bio underneath the declaration just notes, Kipling needs no introduction to people who read the English language. There's one name, however, which is not on this list. Despite being largely unknown and unread today, his omission from the meeting and the declaration would certainly have been very noticeable at the time. This is the author William Lequeux. William Lequeux was a self-professed master of mystery. This is Dr. Elisa Bulfin. My name is Elisa Bulfin. I'm a lecturer in English at Maynooth and my area of specialisation is um, popular fiction and particularly the popular fiction that was published around the turn of the 19th century. Dr. Bulfin has researched the life and writing of Lequeux and as she points out, he was a pretty mysterious figure, and this is exactly how he wanted it. He might even have gone to the lengths of destroying all of his personal papers so he could maintain his enigmatic reputation after death. 
a reputation which fitted perfectly with the type of fiction he wrote. So who was William Lequeux? In as much as we know anything about him, we know that his father was French, a French immigrant to England, that he was of a kind of a lower middle class background um, growing up in not very good circumstances in South London. Um, that a lot of um, young men of this background, he's sort of tried to make a living for himself out of writing. Um, initially he wrote as a journalist and he seemed to make good connections so he was writing for a couple of reputable publications like The Globe. And like a lot of people writing at the time, he turned his hand to fiction as a means to make an income. So we don't really know whether Lequeux believed the paranoid stories that he told about invasion and spying and um, the imminence of war, or whether he just realised that they were very good moneymaker. So what is clear is that Lequeux was an opportunist, with a real gift for writing page-turning popular stories which captured the public mood. And he made a fortune doing it. He played off people's fascination with and their fear of invasion and war. Lequeux wrote what is now generally called invasion fiction. These are stories in which an author imagines an invasion of their country and describes it in precise, realistic and usually terrifying detail. In the late 19th and early 20th century, invasion fiction was huge, not just in Britain but in all the imperial powers at the time. Invasion fiction um, has its origins from a war in Europe in, in 1870 between Germany and France, where France was an old established imperial power. Germany was a kind of a new upstart power, newly technologized, militarized, and it just rolled into France and defeated the French imperial army in a matter of weeks. Um, basically, the rest of Europe looked around and said, oh dear God, what would happen if Germany invades us? And within a few months of that, an army uh, lieutenant writes a fictional, a short fictional piece imagining just that scenario. It was called The Battle of Dorking. It was published in 1871 and it generated a storm of controversy. The Battle of Dorking caused heated discussions and debates. Similar tales started popping up everywhere. Everyone had an opinion on military preparedness and whether Britain would or could be invaded. Politicians, generals and other public figures all weighed in. William Gladstone, the Prime Minister, denounced the book as alarmism. But whether the outlook was optimistic or pessimistic, this was a huge topic of debate from the 1870s right up to the First World War. Through the decades, as different political alliances were made in Europe, the invading country might change, but the fears remain the same. So where does Lequeux fit into this? Well, he started out in the 1890s writing about Britain being invaded by Russia and France. He came to fame with a story published in 1894 called The Great War in England in 1897, and this story imagines a joint French and Russian army invading Britain. What's interesting is that this story was commissioned by Alfred Harmsworth, who would soon become the extremely influential publisher of the Daily Mail newspaper. And this connection with newspapers is really important because invasion fiction, news and communication more generally are all so closely linked. So why publish your story in a newspaper anyway? Well, it definitely reaches a wider audience. Um, where we really see the strength of the serial form is in his most famous invasion novel. It was written in uh, 1906, and it was called The uh, Invasion of 1910. 
um, and it imagines Germany as the main aggressor because geopolitics have shifted to the point where Germany is the most likely aggressor. Now, it was serialised in the Daily Mail, which at the time internationally was the biggest selling daily newspaper. So it just reached a phenomenal audience of over a million readers a day. Um, the initial instalments of it were on the front page. So, And you've got LeCue as an author who likes to blur the boundaries between um, fiction and reality and he uses an incredibly realistic style in this serial as well so we we don't know who the narrator is it moves between pieces of reportage from different newspapers given as if it was fact to kind of the words of a future historian maybe looking back on the period to the testimony of people who volunteered in the defense effort and it drills right down into the fine details of geography and it moves the German army through recognisable places and situations, all the time trying to bring home the horror to the reader of what would happen if the Germans came to my town, to my house. So this is a realistic fictional story on the front page of the Daily Mail. The line between fact and fiction is deliberately blurred. It's fake news of a very different type. In fact, the invasion of 1910 is all about news and communication. In our own times, there are daily examples of how communication networks are used to promote revolution and overthrow governments, to crack down on dissent and censor the population. And this was no different in Lacue's time. With the telegraph, the telephone, quickly printed daily newspapers, you know, this was the first time you could really talk about global events. A decision could be made in one country which would have very real and almost instantaneous consequences on the other side of the world. And communication is power. The invasion of 1910 begins with a communications blackout, which is orchestrated by the invading Germans so they can cover up their initial attack. The story then continues as a blend of war reports, newspaper columns, declarations and so on. And this is all published in a real newspaper. As LeCue was very aware, wars would be won and lost on the basis of communication networks. So... What about today with our vastly more complex and powerful communication networks? The phrase post-truth keeps coming to mind. It's like we've been here before with the period before the First World War. Um, Lecue's blurring of fact and fiction. The fact that he claims a factual basis for his fictional stories and in his purportedly factual pamphlets uses fictional devices and sensationalism. That blurring of the boundaries between truth and reality that really speaks to post-truth. To give you an example of the influence of LeCue's work that is frightening, um, his belief that there was an advance guard of German spies in England was actually widely held, and not just by the public, but by the security community in England at the time. He wrote a novel in 1909 called Spies at the Kaiser, um, and again, he claimed that it was based on secret documents that had been released to him. He also, in the serial that it was published in, asked readers to write in and tell him if they'd seen any suspicious goings-on involving Germans. And many, many readers did. That's bad enough. He compiled them into a dossier and he sent them to uh, one of the people involved in the uh, British security community, Edmonds, and Edmonds presented them to a parliamentary committee as evidence that there was spying activity going on in England. 
And out of this, not obviously just out of this, but out of this climate of fear, you get the setting up of the Secret Service Bureau, the um, Counter Espionage Bureau in England just before the war, which later becomes MI5. I am not for a second saying that Lacue's paranoia generated MI5, but you can see how it contributed to a climate of fear. We seem to be in a situation where we have the same climate of fear and hostility and suspicion. It makes me uneasy, I have to say. Authors such as William Lequeux were particularly conscious of how news and communications were central to military conflict. Manipulating and rewriting the facts could be used to win readers or to win wars, to sell fictional stories or factual newspapers or to blur the lines between everything. Which brings us back to a meeting of literary greats in London. A meeting which, it turns out, is not as incongruous as it might first appear. Writers, more than most, are acutely aware of the power of communication. At this point in time in particular, they understood how propaganda, communication networks, information, words, could change the world. Shade in the shadow Jumping back and forth Asking what he's worth Knocking at the door of his master So that's the first episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. There'll be a new episode every two weeks, so subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast if you want to make sure to get the next one. It will be about, among other things, Sherlock Holmes and ghosts. Special thanks this week to Elisa Bulfin. If this episode has inspired you to find out more about invasion fiction, then please check out the Invasion Fiction Network, which Dr. Bulfin is a founding member of. Links to that and more are on the Words to That Effect website, which is WTTE Podcast. That's WTTE, as in Words to That Effect, podcast.com. Music this week was by two enormously talented musicians, Robert John Ardiff and Philip Coleman. Please check out their work. It's on Spotify, Bandcamp and elsewhere. And links are on the website again. So for more details on everything, the show, everything mentioned in this episode, guests, music, and anything else, head over to wttepodcast.com. You can sign up to the newsletter there as well, and you can click the link to my Patreon page to support the show if you're so inclined. You can also like the show on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at CEDread. And I think that's probably more than enough ways to connect with the show. So that's it. Thank you very much for listening.